0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Saurabh Vishnubakht, Associate Professor of Law at Texas A&M University School of Law and Dwight Look College of Engineering. We will discuss his new article, Disguised Patent Making." So uh, welcome to the podcast, Saurabh. Good to be here, Brian. Yeah, so uh, really cool paper, um, really a in, incredibly detailed look at how the patent office functions and the sort of relationship between the sort of authority of the office and its its incentives and i was wondering if you could if you could start the conversation by explaining to listeners sort of how the patent office is structured uh, especially the relationship between the Patent Office and the Patent Trials and Appeals Board, and sort of the history of how it got there, <laughs> sure. um, as well as as well as its relation to the Federal Circuit, because I think some people may not be familiar with the sort of administrative workings of the Patent Office.
1: Absolutely, and it's uh, it's I, I certainly appreciate the, the question about history because in some ways it is really hard to understand. Uh, why the patent office today looks the way it looks uh, without understanding the uh, the history of how it got here and what problems along the way both congress and uh, and the patent office itself uh, have been trying to solve so it uh, it first bears mention that the patent office as uh, an agency right a sort of uh, a bureaucracy the way we would understand it in modern terms uh, was created uh, not in the you know 1970s or or uh, or even the 1930s during the New Deal, but the 1830s, and it was the, mm. the Patent Act of 1836 that created it, and what we understand to be the the touchstone for modern, uh, you know, regulatory uh, practice, the Administrative Procedure Act, wouldn't come around for another 110 years. So, although the Patent Office is governed by the APA and fits into the the modern administrative state, uh, or at least is supposed to, um, it has this additional century. Uh, of custom and baggage and just practice that uh, it's hard to shake loose from. Um, mm. So history history matters quite a bit. Um, I think the place to begin for the Patent Trial and Appeal Board and the arguments in, uh, in my paper uh, are really the early 1980s, because two really important things happened uh, at that time that set the stage for everything that would follow. One was the uh, introduction of ex parte reexamination, uh, And that is the first post-grant uh, look that somebody would take at the validity of a patent that has already been issued. But it's a look that would take place not inside uh, a courtroom where people could always go and say, hey, we think this patent is uh, invalid, or hey, we think my patent is infringed and I'd like remedies for it, um, but rather inside the agency ex parte reexamination was an administrative reevaluation system rather than a judicial reevaluation system. And who would who would ask for that? Well, it's uh it's Congress that enacted it and I think uh the most compelling account for why I've uh, that I've seen of why it uh it came about is a uh, a series of talks that I've heard from uh from John Duffy, Professor Duffy at the University of Virginia. Uh his argument is that um the the system of equity practice that was quite common in the first part of the 20th century was really turned on its head by a Supreme Court decision uh, from the late 1950s. Uh, And that was a case called Beacon Theaters versus Westover. And what it did was say that where um, a legal remedy was sought and an equitable remedy was sought, such as damages and an injunction, the uh, legal remedy had to take precedence because to do otherwise would... Uh, frustrate the jury trial guarantee of the seventh amendment, and what that did is mm. thrust the jury into a position of decision making in all cases, including patent cases that I think the the Supreme Court uh, had not anticipated and probably didn't have in mind, but it certainly did you know become the prevailing practice so now uh rather than judges. Uh, special masters who have expertise in in the patent law, as well as in substantive uh, scientific and engineering principles, um, juries, lay juries and lay judges were left to decide a whole host of questions that they were just ill equipped to to uh, to evaluate. So, as a result, by the 1970s, patent lawyers have now you know sort of gotten the memo about this, and we start to see a reaction. And by the late 1970s, there's enough of a, a political consensus that in 1980 we get this first. Uh, administrative reevaluation so that the experts at the patent office uh, could do the reevaluating rather than uh, judges and juries. So I think that's what motivated it. And uh, yeah.
0: Ah, I see. And so when would ex parte review happen during the procedures in place in the 1980s? Would that be something that the patent office would do on its own or that like a third party would ask for?
1: So that's a great question. It's actually both of those and and a third uh, person that you might not uh, intuitively think of. Um, the most common way in which people would uh, be expected to, or the most common way in which patents would be expected to be brought in for reevaluation, is by third parties. So the idea was that it could be, you know, uh, Patent owner sues alleged infringer in federal court. Alleged infringer says, "Hey, I've got my doubts about the validity of this patent, but rather than have the judicial or jury, uh, you know, sort of process figure it out, let me take it to the office, the patent office." And so they would file as a third-party requester uh, a petition seeking ex parte reexamination. And what would happen is the patent office would evaluate the petition, the evidence presented uh, uh, up front and say, yeah, we think there's a substantial new question of patentability that we should, uh, you know, uh, take a look at this patent. Or they might say, no, we don't think there's anything new here. We already looked at the, you know, a bunch of evidence uh, when we were examining the thing to begin with. And on the basis of that evaluation Mm -hmm. is how we granted the patent. So the only way it's going to make sense for us, the patent office, uh, reevaluators to take a second look is if you can persuade us at least up front that there's something there uh, worth looking at, something new, something relevant that we should consider that we haven't
0: already considered before. So, so, so would it be fair to say would it be fair to say that in those circumstances, from a defendant's perspective, it's something like an alternative route to a motion to dismiss? Uh it could be that. Yes. Uh if if the
1: uh, a few things would have to happen in order for that to be the outcome. Uh first of all, they would have to have the the additional capital resources and and sort of sophistication, I guess, to go to the patent office and and seek ex parte reexamination. The patent office would have to grant ex parte reexamination and then the court would have to respond to a motion uh, to grant a stay. And say, all right, well, if the patent office has given us an answer about whether this patent is valid, then we will wait because we think what the patent office has to say may be useful information to us. If uh, you know, if the court decides, yeah. well, whatever the patent office decides, we don't think it's going to change the bottom line very much depending on the scope of review, uh, how much of the patent is being challenged, these sorts of things. Then the court might not grant a stay and the case might proceed notwithstanding that there's now a parallel proceeding uh, going on in the patent office. But uh, oh, boy. All, all of that is, is only the first uh, of three potential ways in which you could land in, in the administrative setting. Because apart mm. from the, uh, the person who's been sued uh, or somebody who hasn't yet been sued but thinks they are at risk might just bring in the, the patent preemptively and say, hey, let me, let me try to challenge this patent because I might get sued on it. All of that is still just third parties. The patent owner can himself or herself or itself uh, bring the patent in and say, look, I'm getting ready to sue a bunch of people on this. And I think the patent's valid, but I'd like to be sure. And so I'm going to take it through Ah. another round of review and any new evidence I may have found. um, I'd like to be in the driver's seat. I want my patent to be valid and I want my patent to cover what I say it covers. I want no surprises. So patent office, uh, will you consider my new evidence. And that's, you know, not something you would ordinarily imagine a property right owner uh, as saying, like, it's, it'd be like somebody bringing a quiet title action on their own land. Um, mm. But uh, one can imagine that the uncertainty uh, that, that sometimes surrounds or often surrounds a patent's uh, boundaries might lead the rational and and sophisticated patent owner to say, look, it's in my interest to know
0: this now rather than three years mm-hmm. into an expensive lawsuit. Uh, and so, yeah, do you think the do you think the expense of doing that in the patent office would be lower than doing it in a court? Absolutely, it was intended uh, to be quite a bit lower uh, than in the court because, first of all,
1: the adjudicator already has a bunch more expertise, so you don't have to spend as much time or or hours or uh, resources uh, just educating the judge or the jury, because, you know, there is no judge jury. It's just a a central re-exam unit uh, official in the patent office who already knows a lot. So it's cheaper for that reason. It's also faster for that reason. And the idea, at least in theory, was that it would also be more accurate for that reason. So, you know, patent owners come in, uh, it's their way of gold plating a patent uh, before going going to war. So that's the second way in which a patent might wind up in, the, in review. And then the third is that the director uh, of the patent office could, uh, or at, at the time it used to be just the commissioner because the PTO director position didn't exist until uh, a couple of decades later. But there could be director initiated re-exam where uh, the director on his or her own initiative um, could say, I think this patent needs to be re-evaluated. And, uh, and so the, that's a sort of sua sponte re-evaluation that the agency could undertake. All three of those were possible ways of getting at uh, at the problem of patent validity.
0: Okay. Okay. So it's my understanding that in relatively recent years, this structure has changed again. Uh,
1: yeah. So it actually changed once in the late 1990s. And then uh, this uh, this most recent change in 2011, 2012 uh, is the third uh,
0: incarnation of administrative review. Okay and, and how did those how did those work to change the circumstances, maybe with a focus on on today, given that that seems like what's most at stake in the circumstances you're discussing in your paper?
1: Sure, so I will just say a quick word about the 1990s uh, process uh, to set the stage. Um, it's It was essentially the same in a lot of ways to ex parte re-exam. The only major change was that it was now inter partes, which meant that the party who was bringing in the patent to challenge it didn't just bring it to the agency's doorstep and then had to sit back while the patent owner and the examiner went back and forth. The third party could actually be part of the discussion, and each round of briefing they would get to provide their comments as well. So it was a step toward yeah. more adversarial uh, reevaluation, but it wasn't. It still wasn't quite there, and so that's why now we're in the present day. Um, that's why the the America Invents Act, which was enacted in 2011, and created these uh, these very strong proceedings that I talk about in the paper, uh, primarily intraparte's review. Uh, that's supposed to be a fuller and much more robustly adversarial uh, substitute for what goes on in the courts.
0: Okay. So maybe before we start talking about the kind of current state of interpartis review, you could say a little something about what seems like a sort of kind of almost like political interbranch tug of war between the patent office and the federal circuit and sort of why that exists and sort of what the, you know, sort of relevant relationship between the two is.
1: Sure. Uh, this actually goes back a little bit to the point I made uh, about the historical baggage of the Patent Office. Um, most of the administrative agencies that we understand uh, administrative law through today, Securities and Exchange Commission, Environmental Protection Agency, you know, Social Security, OSHA, um, lo- most of these agencies have substantial policymaking powers. They can develop rules um, substantive rules of law, and courts will be obliged to follow them. The reason for that, of course, is that Congress has delegated to them, uh, either explicitly or implicitly, uh, the power to do these things, to make these rules uh, and, and engage in prospective lawmaking. They also have the authority to engage in uh, adjudication that is sufficiently formal that it rivals the procedural and constitutional protections of the federal courts. And so those adjudications are also entitled to a lot of deference from the courts uh, if judicial review of the agency's uh, adjudications takes place. Neither of those two features, substantive rulemaking authority or formal adjudicatory authority, uh, historically was, uh, was ever given to the patent office. And so as a result... When the Federal Circuit was created in the early 1980s, this is the second of the two things that happened in the early 80s. One was, you know, ex parte re-exam. The second was creation of the Federal Circuit to centralize and consolidate all appellate review uh, across the entire country. No matter what district court you came from, all the patent cases went up to the Federal Circuit. And the idea was here would be an expert tribunal. Uh, who would, you know, cultivate uh, a lot of knowledge and familiarity with patent doctrine, and would go on to, uh, to sort of bring clarity and certainty and predictability to the system. So here's an expert tribunal full of really, really scientifically and doctrinally sophisticated judges. Who are overseeing an agency that has no real congressional mandate to engage in policymaking or rulemaking uh, of any substance, nor any sub- uh, formal mm. judicatory authority? So, what's going to happen? The agency is not going to get uh, very much deference at all, and that's that's exactly how the Patent Office did uh, sort of proceed—is just under the very strong, uh, undeferential eye of the Federal Circuit, um, and as a result when the America Invents Act came along, and although the first two versions of administrative review didn't really have much in the way of, um, of rulemaking authority or formal adjudicatory authority, the AIA's creation of these new proceedings, inter partes review, covered business method review, post-grant review, those uh, were sufficiently formal that a number of scholars uh, of the administrative process of the patent system, uh, such as R.D. Rye, my co-author, and uh, my friend Melissa Wasserman and, and others, uh, have said, look, this is sufficiently formal that it probably does warrant uh, pretty robust deference by the courts, up to and including Chevron deference. So mm, that's, the, yeah. that's the way in which the patent office uh, experience changed from you know the, the early 1980s through the end of the... The first decade of the 2000s. And then starting in this decade, the the 2010s, um, we have a whole new system where all of a sudden the Patent Office is uh, given quite a bit of uh, new authority and potentially new deference. And so their power vis-a-vis the district courts is expanding because... Congress wants people to leave the courts and come to this expert tribunal instead. And the Patent Office's power vis-a-vis the Federal Circuit as an appellate reviewing body is also expanding because they're now going to get uh, hopefully a lot more deference. Um, and as I as I mentioned in the paper, um, they might be able to get the equivalent of deference by other means. But either way, their power uh, to withstand judicial review is going to go up.
0: Yeah, so maybe we can move now into talking about some of the observations that you make in your paper about. I mean, maybe this is just my characterization, but it, it sort of seems like about how the patent office is like trying to seize some of these potential policy levers mm-hmm. and take advantage of them for better or or for worse, mm-hmm. um, and and it seems like there were like two strands almost in the critique you were making one relating to the patent trial and appeal board judges and sort of the structure of the panels and the other relating to sort of administrative decision making on behalf of the director of the office is, is that right yeah that's absolutely right and uh, it,
1: it has a little bit to do with how the the statute is worded um, some powers, are delegated directly to the to the director of the agency, um, who then, for reasons of convenience and and feasibility, subdelegates those powers to the PTAP. And then in other situations, the Congress, uh, in, in the statute, uh, delegated powers directly to the PTAB and set up a uh, you know sort of relationship between various elements and constituencies within the patent office, uh, wherever those might lie, and then the Federal Circuit or the District Courts, and so the way in which the agency has uh, has um, tried to apply those and, and bring those uh, rules into effect uh, has had, I think, significant structural consequences. And uh, look, I mean, I, I, while I criticize a number of those things, it's not as if I don't understand what the agency is trying to accomplish, and it's not as if I, I disagree with a lot of the aims that the the agency has in mind. So I think. Um, I think your characterization is a fair one, but it's important also to to keep in mind that uh, it's it's as much about unintended and unforeseeable consequences as it is about um, sort of legislative and administrative intent.
0: Yeah. Okay, that makes sense to me. And 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 one thing that I was a little I was interested in, but didn't feel like I fully understood um, was the relationship between the patent office and the PTAB because, you know, it, it seems easy to conceptualize the PTAB as sort of being part of mm-hmm. the patent office, but it seemed like there was a, a greater degree of autonomy mm-hmm. or like, like they weren't a hundred percent accountable directly to the patent office in the way I would have assumed. Is that right? Well, so both of the things that you said, which are somewhat in
1: tension with each other uh, are, all right. So let me sort of unpack that a little bit. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, uh, as a tribunal, sits within the agency. It's part of the agency for purposes of uh, funding, um, for, you know, sort of personnel decisions, hiring, chain of command, all these sorts of things. Um, the chief judge, vice chief judge, and senior leadership of the agency are people who. Um, have a lot of expertise both in the, the technologies uh, in which they're trained, as well as in the law and policy of the patent system. Uh, many of them uh, are people who used to be uh, board judges. Uh, when before the the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, the Administrative Tribunal of the of the agency was called the Board of Patent Appeals and Interferences, and so the board the BPAI judges uh, were simply you know brought over as the the starting. Uh, core of the of the the PTAB, so these are people with a lot of institutional experience and institutional memory. And then beyond that, when the PTAB went on uh, a a very large uh, hiring initiative in order to staff up to to implement the AIA, a lot of people uh, who were hired on came in as former partners, very senior and experienced uh, patent litigators. Uh, from the bench and bar who themselves had a lot of scientific and doctrinal uh, expertise, right? So there's a tremendous amount of knowledge uh, with, that the director Can tap into not only for the board judges to serve as board judges, but for the leadership of the board to serve as policy advisors and uh, an input into larger policy discussions regarding the patent system. So that's one way in which the PTAB relates to the agency. Now, how does the agency relate to the PTAB? Um, The director. Who is the head of the agency and is, you know, Senate confirmed undersecretary of commerce? In addition to being the agency head, um, is a member of the board, ex officio, and is po- it is possible for the director to sit on the board? It is possible for the commissioner for patents, uh, I believe, to sit on the board. So there are agency leadership positions that are constituted as being part of the board, just as the leadership of the board is present. Uh, and I think appropriately present in agency policy discussion. So there's a lot of conversation and dialogue that goes back and forth between the agency as an agency and the PTAB as an adjudicatory body.
0: Right. So as I understand it, then a certain subset of the kind of quasi policymaking of the agency takes place through the PTAB. And it sounds like from your paper, um, sort of the structuring of various boards mm-hmm. is kind of implicated in these efforts to shape agency policy.
1: Yeah, so that's a very circumspect and, and, and diplomatic way of, uh, of characterizing what I say in the paper, right? So uh, I, I take issue quite quite consciously, with what uh, in the, the patent popular press has been called panel stacking, uh, where you know the, the, the panels of the PTAB consist of three administrative patent judges, and uh, we want those folks to be chosen on the basis of uh, technological expertise, as they are, and workload. Obviously, that's something the agency is going to have to take into account. Um, but once those three judge panels are constituted, it's possible for expanded panel rehearings. In the same way that a a court of appeals, for example, in the federal system might rehear a case en banc uh, and get the the benefit of several additional judges uh, providing their input, um, the idea was that expanded panels uh, could be constituted in the PTAB. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with granting rehearing in this fashion. The problem comes when the selection of uh, additional patent judges to sit in uh, a panel is made either because the new judges will get the case to come out the way that political leadership of the agency wants it to, or even if that's not the case, if there's something politically but not legally defective with the uh, initial decision. In other words, we're granting rehearing for political reasons, and even though the panel is going to be expanded in ways that we don't know which way it's going to turn out. The very fact that the defective nature, the, the sort of defect in the the original panel decision um, was that we want the, the case to have come out differently, even though the evidence says this and, and so on, we're making, we're putting our thumb on the scale in favor of a certain um, policy judgment. That's, I think, a problematic use of the adjudicatory process. I don't think it's a problematic use of agency power necessarily when it's done transparently and subject to political checks and balances. But when it's done sub rosa in this way, uh, that's the thing that I take issue with in the in the paper.
0: Yeah, I mean, panel stacking sounds an awful like court packing mm. to me, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like adding people to the court to get the result you want. But but one thing that 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 I felt like I didn't fully grasp mm-hmm. in in the circumstances you describe is I mean it seemed like some of the problematic decisions from the agency perspective that panels were making that were leading to these stacking procedures had to do with like interpretations of background agency governing statutes or agency policies. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't help but wonder like why can't the director of the agency make those decisions on on their own, mm-hmm. as opposed to those decisions about the interpretation of these kind of background governing principles being made by panels? That just struck me as kind of odd. Absolutely. And that was one of the the criticisms
1: that I think a number of people who actually had different opinions about how bad panel stacking was, how prevalent it was, and how uh, seriously it should be taken as a as a, a structural problem in the patent office itself. Uh, although a number of us disagreed about those questions, we all agreed it would be much better if the director just did this by rulemaking because it's clear that the director mm. can do this by rulemaking. Um, so why not just do it that way, have public input, um, and, and and make your rules and go forward. Because doing it prospectively and giving people notice, here's what we're going to do, um, is simply more accountable. And yeah, it may not get you the result you want, but that's a, there's a reason for that. That suggests that there's going to be political pushback um, that people should have an opportunity to, to mount. Uh, if it's done in, in this sort of sub-Rosa way where it's being done incrementally, case by case, not only does that injure predictability, People don't know what the background rules are. It's being decided in each case retrospectively, you know, were the, the pr- proper procedures, whatever they might have been properly followed in this case, rather than doing it by this very slow Socratic method. Um, I think it probably would have been much better to, to just say, here's what we want. And if the next director disagrees, uh, you know, that person can can change it. I think that would have been a much more transparent and accountable way to do it.
0: Okay, so you also talk about the director using a- assertions of the unreviewability mm-hmm. of certain kinds of decisions um, in, it seems like, kind of a similar fashion. And do you think the reason for both of these sort of sub-Rosa efforts to make policy in a less than transparent way are related to each other or not? I absolutely do.
1: Um, I think the, and, and in fact, let me give a concrete example of what I was talking about. Um, because it is a little tough to unpack in the abstract. There was a case, um, called Yisim, uh, the, what was it? Yism research development, the Hebrew university of Jerusalem, uh, excuse me, Yisum research of Hebrew university of Jerusalem, the Sony corporation. Okay. So the Yisim case, um, This was decided um, uh, a few years ago. The oral argument was in December of 2015, and it was at that oral argument at the Federal Circuit that some really interesting facts um, first came to light about how the Patent Office was engaging in, in expanded panel rehearings. So this is a case in which the agency said anytime there's a seeming outlier um, from, you know, uh, we've decided a bunch of cases and along comes this one case that's an outlier from the others. Um, Judge Toronto in oral argument said uh, you've engaged the power to reconfigure the panel to get the result you want. And the the, the attorney from the the USPTO who was arguing the case said, yes. And Judge Toronto, uh, if you listen to the audio, it's much, much more sort of, you know, uh, Stark. And he says, and there's a pause. And he's like, and you don't see a problem with that? And, uh, <laughs> right. And So the, the patent office says, well, you know, your honor, the director is trying to ensure that her policy position is being enforced by the panels. So far, not bad. Mm. But then the director is not given adjudicatory authority. That's given directly to the board, not to the director. Now the director is a member of the board. The patent office clarifies, but after the panel is chosen, is it possible for the director to uh, engage in case-specific readjudication? That's the sticking point. The agency thought the answer to that question was yes, and um, I think there's some question about whether that's um, the the right interpretation or a good interpretation for for policy reasons. Mm. So the the sort of Hacking the panel to get the outcome you want. Um, I think the most uh, egregious example of that that I saw in all the PTAB cases I looked at was there's a case in which the original judge, a uh, three judge panel, was about to issue its initial uh, decision, and before the decision was even rendered. It became clear to the the PTAB leadership that hey, this decision is going to come out, and it's going to come out this way, and so they didn't even wait for the decision to come down, and didn't even wait for the the losing party to ask for a rehearing. They just, on their own, added two additional judges to the um, to the the panel, in hopes that those two people would vote the quote unquote correct way. And would manage to swing one vote away from the original three, and it would turn out three to two going what the agency was w- thought was the right way. Okay, now it didn't work, and the three judges uh, who were originally on the panel kept their votes the, the way they were, and it turned out three to the way the case was originally going to go. So now the agency's got uh, you know a problem: do we just let the decision lie, or do we? Double down. And the agency doubled down. And what happened is that two additional judges were added to the panel so that uh, you had the three original judges who were voting the wrong way, uh, according to the agency leadership, and now four judges who have been placed on the panel uh, to turn it. And that's what ultimately happened. The agency decided, the, the PTAB decided the case the correct way, and it was a four to three decision. Even when confronted with these four Votes that outweighed them, the three original judges still filed a dissent, adhering to their original position. Right, so that's, I think, a sort of. Let's just keep adding people until we get it. Um, that's a really bad set of facts, and yeah, I, I think it wasn't altogether necessary because. Let's now. Let's talk about the you know the the question you had started to raise, which is judicial review. This case. Uh, of multiple, the situation I should say, of multiple um, attempts at, at uh, rehearing to get the right outcome and make sure that all the cases are going the right way um, in accordance with the director's policy views. First of all, all these took place you know, a few uh, years ago. So um, it's important to be clear about that. Um, the, the reason to do this, why do this? What does the agency get from doing this? Well, if the agency has a number of cases coming out the right way, the correct way, a uniform way, and what they're using, uh, expanded panel rehearings and these sorts of uh, personnel choices uh, to to maintain discipline and making sure the agency speaks with one voice. Well, when the agency speaks with one voice and has a consistent policy position on something, at that point, they become entitled to something resembling Chevron deference, right? Mm. they 're speaking certainly with the force of law, and they 're speaking with one voice on a policy question about which there could be divergent opinions when that happens when you 've got a single coherent policy position you 're more likely to get at least some deference from the courts than in other situations than if there 's you know a cacophony of of uh, policy positions within the agency itself, so that was the basis. For the agency seeking Chevron deference on a procedural issue still wasn't substantive Chevron deference, but it was a step toward asking for Chevron deference, which the agency hasn't gotten before. And again, that's a little weird, because if you want Chevron deference, I think there are ways to get it um, that don't require uh, so much, you know, circum, uh, circuitous and, and circumlocutory uh, uh, ways of, of Creating the circumstances necessary to justify uh, deference.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like if if you want courts to defer to agency decision-makers on the basis of consistency among agency decision-makers, you'd want those agency decision-makers to be autonomous and reaching the same result on their own as opposed to getting their knuckles wrapped by the director, right? I mean, well, look, I don't, I don't have any problem with the director
1: telling the, the board how to do their job because the director is the director. Um, but there's a better way than constituting panels one at a time. It's, again, rulemaking. You engage in notice and comment rulemaking and tell the board, here's what the rule is, and you're going to follow it. That way, the judges, um, if they do get their knuckles wrapped, it's because they didn't follow rules that they were told about in advance. That's that's much more defensive. Yeah, yeah so... In-
0: yeah. And in and in your paper, you suggest that there's also some kind of like designation of certain decisions or kind of effective designation of some decisions as being kind of practically unreviewable. Do you think that's part of the same phenomenon that you've been describing in relationship to the kind of panel stacking at the PTAC? It is,
1: yeah. The authority for, for not just panel stacking, but all rehearings and all expanded panel, uh, reconstituting panels, all of those situations comes from the agency's uh, standard operating procedure, which is uh, uh, published. Now, the, the SOP uh, that allows panels to be reconstituted, expanded, and so forth, also um, provides for uh, the designation of certain opinions as being informative or uh, even precedential. So here's an, here's an opinion that we think uh, you know, sort of summarizes the state of the law. So if you want to do research on this issue, read this opinion, and it'll give you a bunch of sites and, you know, fact patterns and so forth. Um, so that's a good research tool. And the agency's designation provides valuable information for, for attorneys and the public. If you go further and say, not only is this representative, but it's informative, you know, the, the term of art, informative. What that means is, We're synthesizing normative guidance now. Not only does this tell you the state of the law, but it also tells you something about why the state of the law uh, that that represents is a good thing and something that you should sort of consider when you're crafting arguments and and policy positions in your briefs. So that's one step above merely a representative curation of uh, of opinions. And then the highest designation, which the agency can grant, is precedential that takes not only a uh, a curation of representative opinions and not just a synthesis of normative guidance, but a prescriptive um, sort of addition that says, we're going to take this normative guidance and we're going to make it binding. On future panels, um, it's just like when the federal circuit designates an opinion precedential, a panel opinion precedential, the only thing that can uh, overcome that, of course, is, uh, is en banc review, right? So- uh, the the binding effect that the Federal Circuit can give to its opinions, the, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board uh, can give to its opinions as well. Now, the SOP tells us not only that this is possible, but also spells out how it's to be done. And it used to be the case until uh, a few months ago that the majority of the entire PTAB, which consisted of, uh, of about 300 judges, um, the last time I checked, but it hasn't been uh, that recently that I checked. So that number may have changed. But uh, the majority of a very large group of people had to agree to make the, the, the given opinion precedential. So that's a vote that's you know going be, to be tough to, to navigate in some situations because a lot of people who really know the law and might have strong opinions about what the right answer is uh, might not all be inclined to agree. And then after that, it has to go to the director and, you know, the director and other leadership of the agency who are also part of the PTAB also have to agree and sign off before this thing can be made presidential. So as a result of that very difficult, very uh, laborious process, uh, it's perhaps not surprising that in the first uh, six or seven years, you know, the first uh, lengthy period of time in which uh, all of this was going on. Uh, not very many opinions were were designated presidential, uh, only about a double handful. And so there was, a, I think, a lack of really strong presidential guidance from the PTAB to individual panels of the PTAB. I think if the agency had made it easier, if the director had had a much more direct role um, in designating opinions presidential and saying, I'm the head of the agency, I set the policy uh, for the PTAB, and I hereby do so by saying this opinion, which is, uh, you know, sort of arose on its own and based purely on the force of reasoning and quality of analysis and alignment with my policy preferences as a presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed agency head, deserves to be presidential. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mm-hmm. everything about that uh, is defensible and familiar to scholars of administrative law. So, uh, at that point. Um, I think a lot more guidance might have come about that would have been helpful to the agency, but instead we got, you know, not very much presidential uh, guidance. And to the to the extent that uh, the agency wanted to to get Chevron deference or other sorts of respect from the from the federal courts, particularly the federal circuit, uh, they were trying to go about it in these ways uh, that uh, just weren't necessary.
0: Hmm. Well, mm. so, so to return to your kind of big picture critique mm-hmm. of sort of what you see taking place, uh, you know, sort of in these in these different decisions. I mean, do you see the fundamental problem as being sort of like bad decision making on the merits, or is it more about like a lack of predictability or lack of transparency in how the decisions are? Are getting I think it's more the latter. I think the the quality
1: of decision making with respect to the evidence, with respect to technological sophistication of the board judges, and with respect to proper application of uh, of the law as they understand it, I think board judges uh, do an extraordinary job. And um, even when they make mistakes, it's you know because reasonable people can disagree, and it's only called a mistake because it got overturned by an authority that has more power. So. Um, that's, that's not to minimize either the, the position of the Federal Circuit or the expertise of the PTAV, but it's just the, the, you know, uh, the way in which uh, judicial review works. I think the problem of predictability and particularly the problem of process is what I engage, in, uh, engage with in the paper. And I, I will say that I've, I've been gratified that in the last uh, year or so, the the administration at the Patent Office, Director Iancu, uh, since he came in, has done uh, I think a really good job of uh, reversing some of these uh, some of these practices. So that, uh, for example, the standard operating procedure is now changed to make sure that designation of uh, presidential opinions is done by a presidential opinion uh, panel. That's constituted specifically for that purpose. It's much easier. It's much more in line with uh, the principles of agency head review. Uh, So, in other words, the director takes a much more active role in uh, in making sure that the 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 opinions that are designated presidential are uh, reflective of agency policy as uh, as he sees it and and wants it to be. So, that's a good thing. I think that's a step uh, a big step in the right direction. Now the the sop also says that the the presidential opinion panel the pop procedure is not the only way in which the the panel you know the panel opinion can be made presidential so that means the old way still potentially could be used but it won't be an impediment to uh, to to getting presidential opinions i mean that's fine but agency head review is really what the the touchstone uh, i think ought to be uh, for the agency to flex its muscle and ask for deference and ask for a bigger place in the patent system and greater prominence in the patent system, uh, which seems to be what, uh, what they want. Um, and it's just a question of how to get
0: there in a procedurally sound and sensible way. Do you think there are any other institutional players who can sort of push the agency in that direction, or is it really up to the head of the agency?
1: No, I think uh, I think it can't be up to only the head of the agency, um, because if uh, if that were the case, then um, you know all sorts of of aggrandizements, as I say in the paper, uh, would be possible, not because of bad intentions, but simply because. Uh, people who think they have the right answer and have sincerely held beliefs um, need to be checked by other people who have sincerely held beliefs and, and, and other uh, you know, views about what the right answer is. That's how we ensure that in this, uh, by pitting one part of the government against another, uh, that's entirely what checks and balances is all about, right? So I think the federal circuit uh, has, uh, has started to, and the Supreme Court too, in fact, uh, have started to push back a little bit on on the patent office, and I think that's a good thing. Um, and it's also uh, a valuable piece of information for the patent office to have about itself um, that the agency or that the courts have started pushing back, because it used to be that in the initial uh, years of PTAB review, uh, whenever something went up to the Federal Circuit, um, Federal Circuit would review it, and they would you know give us. Uh, uh, a well reasoned discussion of what they thought the right answer was, but there was often an undercurrent of, look, the agency is getting its feet under themselves um, with this new AIA trial proceeding system, and the PTAB would, you know, do well to to be able to experiment a little bit and get the right answer without a lot of judicial inf- interference uh, right out of the gate, and so the. The structural decisions regarding uh, whether you know, certain kinds of decisions were judicially reviewable or not, uh, certain kinds of questions regarding Chevron deference of procedural uh, choices that the agency made, all of those um, were decided, and not all of them went in the agency's favor, but they were all decided, I think, with a quite uh, careful consideration of how the agency would really be able to, to do its work. Uh, with or without the kind of deference and the kind of uh, leniency that was at stake. Now, a few years have passed. The agency has, uh, and particularly the PTAB, has matured in its role as implementers of the AIA, and uh, I think the Federal Circuit doesn't feel as shy anymore, and certainly the Supreme Court uh, this past year, 2018, uh, did not feel shy about saying Look, this may be disruptive to you, but life is like that sometimes. You have to do what the statute says, and here's what we think the statute says. Um, so, the SAS Institute case, which ended the practice of partial institution, and the, um, the Wi Fi 1 case from January of 2018, a year ago now, um, that said, hey, this practice that you thought was judicially unreviewable. Uh, patent office, turns out is subject to judicial review after all. And that was an en banc decision overturning a presidential panel decision of the federal circuit. So initially, the federal circuit had said, um, you know, you, you're okay, patent office, this is non reviewable, so you can do as you like. Now, don't get the wrong answer. But if you get the wrong answer, you know, we're we're not going to review it. Um, because we think you're going to make more than you're going to miss. Uh, the, the en banc, mm-hmm. the, the en banc uh, decision. In Wi-Fi one uh, turned that around and said no it's subject to judicial review and the 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 practice that the Patent Office was was engaging in uh, and what I describe in the paper I think is a campaign of uh, of trying to push for increasingly expansive increasingly broad uh, reading of this one statute that says um, this one decision by the by the director, to institute review or not institute review is not subject to judicial review. Well if you're the agency, particularly you know the PTAD, and you want to insulate yourself from judicial interference, because you think you're going to get the right answer most of the time, but you don't want to ask for chevron deference, how can you get the insulation that you want? Well one way is to point to a non-appealability statute and say, this is as broad as you know as anything. And uh, all the things we do can be sort of placed in this wonderful bag of of non-reviewable discretion, and and we'll just we'll just do whatever we want without having to worry about the the flip side of Chevron deference, which is all the political accountability that you have to uh, provide. So I engage with that quite a bit in the paper as well.
0: Yeah, well, so Sir so Rob, maybe you could like close by talking a little bit about sort of what you see as a likelihood going, going forward. And, you know, uh, do you think it's likely that the federal circuit and maybe the Supreme Court are going to continue to push back against this? Do you see the the, P, the the patent office kind of folding on these assertions of unreviewability and maybe moving back in a more traditional kind of rulemaking direction or sort of what do you anticipate? So I think that, let me start with the patent office first. Uh, I think
1: that the patent office has, has certainly gotten the message, right? A lot of uh, really uh, prominent scholars, certainly more prominent than I, um, have been telling the agency both directly and in in print and through you know, testimony at, at hearings and so on. That look the way that the agency was going about this had some problems, and and here are ways to solve that problem. Um, the Federal Circuit, I think, will um, continue to decide cases. Um, you know, they decide a lot more of. Uh, they, they set, obviously, a lot more of the, the patent office's uh, structural choices as being valid or invalid than the Supreme Court does just by the very nature of, of their direct review. So I think on balance, the federal circuit will probably consider themselves to be bound by prior their own prior precedents unless the Supreme Court steps in and says, hey, you got to change this. Um, so the, the Wi-Fi 1 case was, was a good example Uh, of that because the Supreme Court had said a couple years before in in the Quozo decision that, hey, this non-appealability statute is quite broad, uh, certainly broader than the petitioner said it was, but then it had exceptions in it. And so the the Wi-Fi 1 case ended up being more about the exceptions than about the main holding. So I think the federal circuit is going to uh, probably Uh, continue to engage with the the PTAB on a case-by-case basis and isn't going to have a grand plan. The Supreme Court, when they step in at all, will probably be more likely to to say, we're not going to take this case unless there's a really, really good reason to. And that really, really good reason will reflect at least some background principle of what the the plan should be, the right answer, the the governing principle should be. Um, That's the way The relationship between the Federal Circuit and the Supreme Court vis-a-vis the Patent Office has been, and and I see no reason to doubt that it will continue to be that way. As far as the the Patent Office itself, um, I think there are indications that they're going to move toward rulemaking, uh, for example, because they've started issuing more guidance on Section 101, on amendment practice in the PTAB. Um, They're sort of making their priors known up front uh, much more frequently than uh, than in the past, and that's uh, that's a step toward rulemaking that I think is uh, is quite good. They also engaged in rulemaking specifically on the issue of claim construction, uh, which uh, I supported and and, uh, and got a number of uh, you know, colleagues uh, on board to to join me in supporting. Uh, I think those sorts of moves. Uh, by the Patent Office are very welcome, and and I hope they continue because I think it is the more transparent, more accountable way for the agency to to exercise the, the responsibility that it's been given.
0: Great. Well, Saurabh, thank you so much. I mean, I learned a ton <laughs> about the Patent Office and how it works today, so I really appreciate well, it. my pleasure.
1: It. Thanks for having me, Brian.
2: For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. Such an instrument is the turboencabulator. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes, it is produced by the modial interaction of magnetoreluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of prefamulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two spurving bearings were in a direct line with a panometric fan. The latter consisted simply of six hydrocoptic Marsel veins, so fitted to the ambifacient lunar wane shaft that side fumbling was effectively prevented. The main winding was of the normal lotus o delta type placed in panendermic semi-boloid slots of the stator, every seventh conductor being connected by a non-reversible tremie pipe to the differential girdle spring on the up end of the grammys. The cabulator has now reached a high level of development, and it's being successfully used in the operation of novertrunnions. Moreover, whenever a fluorescent score motion is required, it may also be employed in conjunction with a drawn reciprocation dingle arm to reduce sinusoidal repleneration. It's not cheap, but I'm sure the government will buy it.